This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is once again, Gajuar Siafu. So this is part two of my interview with Gajuar Siafu. If you recall from last week, this is a three-part series that we're doing with him. And we're just talking real-life stories with Gajuar. These are things that actually happened to him. And he's had an incredible life and lives an incredible life still. So you guys are in for a real treat. And don't forget to, to listen to next week's episode as well. And if you haven't heard last week, go and listen to that one first and then come back to this one. Here is my conversation with Gajuar Siafu. Well, let's take it to your teenage years. What, what's, uh, what was Gajuar as a teenager like? Teenager. Hmm. Teenager, I was uber focused. I was, I took life so serious, hmm. but not really. You know, my whole mind state as a teenager was I got to win. Clearly, because where I came from, I was like, this is, if this is the bottom, I don't want to be here as a teenager or as a young adult. So I was fixated on winning, winning, not by any means necessary, but just being successful, whatever that, whatever I thought that was at the time. I was on my own at an early age. So we're looking at 15, 16 years old. I paid rent. I spent a lot of time alone because one thing I found out that was constant with me as a young person, as a young child, back in the hood, we would play something called, it's funny because I just remember this. We would play something called Roundup and like it was the most amazing game because you would have like maybe close to a hundred kids. And, you know, we put our little pro kids in the, in the circle and it'd be like doggy walkie step right out doggy walkie step. You know, you're going around to find out who's it. That shit itself took 45 minutes to find out who was going to be the first person. It's like a glorified version of tag. But with this game called roundup, if you were it and let's say I tagged you, then that means me and you got to go on a hunt for these 50, 75 other kids. Now, whoever we tag in the process, now we got 30 kids going after this, going after 40 kids. And then now it's we got 60 kids all throughout the whole hood. This this one game would last eight hours in the streets, like because the whole hood was yours. And I remember like I'd be always the last kid, like nobody could get me. Like so now you got 75 kids, 50 kids looking for hunting this one kid. And that one kid was me. and what would happen more times than none is they couldn't get me and it'd be like, well, we all quit. We're not playing anymore. And that fucked with me because I'm like, wait a minute. I went so long and outmaneuvered you guys all day long only for you guys to quit because you can't get me. I want to be the winner. I think that's indicative of my life. I always wanted to be the winner because I've lost so much as a young person. I wanted to be victorious in everything that I did. And when I realized that that was happening, you know, people couldn't catch me, they would quit, or people couldn't beat me at board games and different things that I would elevate in life. And they'd be like, well, I'm going home. And they would take that right away from me to win. And then I started saying, you know what? I'm not trying to play on anybody else's team anymore. Because at one point I tried to be part of everything that everybody was doing. 
I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be down. But I couldn't stop being less than who I was. So I would go hard. But then again, I started getting denied access. Oh, we don't want to play with you no more. You don't play fair, you know, because I talk shit. As I'm whooping your ass in this game, Stratego or Monopoly, or I'm talking shit the whole time. Connect Four, I'm talking shit to your mama about how I'm whooping her son's ass in Connect Four. I just talk shit, but it made for me it made the game fun. But I would always win. But people would quit. Then I realized that listen, you know, I don't want to play on anybody's team anymore. If anything, I'm going to build my own team. And I tried that, and it never worked because nobody really was willing to put in work. So needless to say, I'm saying all that just to say that I spent a lot of time, my, my young adult life, my adolescent time alone, completely alone. So I had a lot of time to think. I had a lot of time to strategize. And that's pretty much what I did as a young person. A lot of exercising, a lot of, you know, because, you know, people are down. A lot of times they turn to exercise, just exercise ridiculously, running 10, 20, 30 miles, you know, Every other day, you know what I'm saying? I did a lot of that. I was getting in trouble in the streets. So at some point, not big trouble, you know, you know, we all sold crack, we all sold drugs and everything. But to me, that was like, I really felt like a loser trying to get money that I know I could make if I just apply myself, but I'm taking it easy way. And I remember the last time I sold drugs, because I was selling drugs, I was you know, I don't even want to say this, but I was stuffing drugs on my kids. My my firstborns, you know, I hope she don't hear this, but stuffing drugs on my firstborns, dolls, cutting the dolls open, putting cocaine, crack heroin, sewing the doll back up and transporting it all over the place. Crazy, man. Now that I think about it. But I remember the last time, the final time I sold drugs, I was with one of my friends who I'm not going to name, but it was wintertime and it was so cold outside. And we made, he was going to just drop off some drugs to somebody he knew. And he brought me along because he knew that if something went wrong, I'm going to equalize the situation. So that's why he brought me along. So I'm sitting there and it's cold and it's snowy. And the woman comes out for the package and she's in a, obviously a crack den. And she's, he's playing with her. Like, you want it? You want it? You want it? And he's teasing her like with the package. And she's a fiend, obviously. And he was just doing a favor because we was really into bigger things than that. He was just doing a favor for somebody or something. I guess he knew her, but he was playing with her. She was just so like jittery and so nervous because she wanted this drug. And then one of the kids came out with a diaper on. Now, mind you, it's fucking like 10 below zero. It's cold. And as soon as she realized that the kid came out, she went crazy on the kid. Get the fuck back in the house. And I started hitting the kid. The kid was in diapers. So I was like, damn, this is what drugs will do. Of course, I know firsthand what drugs will do, but I'm like, damn. Kid goes inside, you know, we're handling business. The kid comes back outside somewhere. He gets around the mother, gets out the door and he stands next to me. He grabs my pinky, just kind of gently grabs my pinky. He had a diaper on, dirty clothes, food all over his face and everything. I was like, fuck. And I was like, get out of here. Get away from me. You know, because it bothered me. And he didn't go too far. He came back and grabbed my hand again. And I looked down at this little kid and I was like, and the mother strung out doesn't even know what's happening. And my friend toying with her, I looked at the whole dynamic. I said, I can't do this. Even though we were moving like big weight all over the place, not big weight, but you know, we were moving like state to state. We was doing that type of shit. I looked at this shit and I said, man, this is the effect 
that it has on the babies for a couple of dollars. I said, man, I can't do this, man. So that was it for me. I stopped selling drugs at that point. You know, I wasn't a big drug dealer. I wasn't a drug kingpin. I wasn't none of that. I made money. But I knew that I was smart, that I could, if anything, I could work. And I could outwork anybody if I needed money. I knew that I was smart, that I could outthink anybody, you know what I mean, to make money. I had, this was like a coward's way of making money. And shortly after that, I, I had to ask myself, would I go into the white community and post up on their blocks and sell drugs like this? I asked myself this, honestly. And the answer was, no, I wouldn't. And so I said, well, why wouldn't you? And the question was, I mean, the, the question was, why wouldn't you? And the answer was because I would be afraid to go to jail. And that said to me, you're a coward. My subconscious mind said, you're a fucking coward. If you can do this in your own community, but you can't do this in anybody else's community, you are less than a man because you're preying off of the already disenfranchised. You're a coward. And that was, again, that was the last thing you can call me in life is a coward. The last thing you can say is I'm afraid. So I said, fuck that. And it's not fair. If I can't go in your community, I can't go in the white community, can't go in the Chinese community, I can't go in the Italian community and sell drugs, set up shop and sell drugs. Why the fuck am I praying off of my own people? So that was it for me with this whole drug thing. So then I started to um, just be a little bit more creative. I went to the military to avoid jail at one point. A lot of people don't know that. I love the military. The military for me was a vacation. Extremely physical, extremely like pressure, under pressure, constantly. So I did the military for a few years, few years until I had an officer, I guess he, uh, I don't know. He took it personal that I was, I, cause in the military it's very competitive. Right. And that's right. That was right up my alley. So I was a fast runner, but I was a long distance runner. I could run forever. So we had this one young officer. He was a, a, a long distance runner and he would challenge all of the lower ranking recruits. Oh, you're so good. You're so this and that. He went to West Point and blah, blah, blah. And so I smoked them. I would always beat them. I would always beat everybody. I could run one mile, two miles, and three miles. And it was like, as I was, as I was running, I'd be outside of my body, just watching down this person run. But I would never lose. Almost like this was my salvation, running long distances. So this officer had a thing for me. He had a problem because I was always winning. And so I remember one day we was in Honduras and we were putting up a, a tent and the wind was probably uh, 70, 80 miles an hour. It was just throwing everybody all over. And if you can imagine putting up this huge tent and it's just throwing people 10, 20 feet in the air. And it threw me and I landed on a, a spike, like a three foot spike and it jabbed my side. Mm. And so this officer was like, get up, you know, and now this is past basic training now. So this is working a job. You're talking to me like I'm a fucking new recruit and I'm not. And he, and he had a problem with me anyway. And that particular day, I was like, yo, fuck you. He was like, what? So he came over talking shit because he was talking to another officer and he thought that that shit was going to work. And I washed him. I washed him. I laid him out. So at that point, they tried to bring me up on charges in the military. So they want to put me in Fort Leavenworth prison, all types of shit. But at that point, I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. So if you want me to go to jail, I'll go to jail. But this is not my thing. Because 
even before that, before I went to Honduras, I remember like leaders of, you know, sergeants and shit, they would go away on the weekends and they would come back with photos of them in their clan uniforms. And they would say, listen, this is what we do on the weekend. And show us pictures of them at clan rallies and at clan meetings. But they was cool as fuck during the week. <laughs> no, I didn't even know that they was involved with that. But then they would come back throwing this shit in my face and everybody's face. And I'm like, because most of us, you know, you know, I was a chemical specialist. So most of us were, were, were black there. And I was like, this is whack. Uh, you know, so I already had a bad taste in my mouth from that. And then when this guy, he kept riding me and then I, I beat his ass. Then they wanted to court martial me for that. So I was like, fuck it. I'll do this. whatever time they give me. I'll do it. Come back out. And that'll be that. So from then they quarantined me, if you want to say the military quarantined me for like, because they were going to fly me from Honduras back to North Carolina. I was in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, a very prestigious military base, home of the second 82nd Airborne Division. I was an 82nd Airborne, but I was stationed there. But anyway, they flew my captain from North Carolina to talk to me in Honduras. Willie Captain, I remember his name, Captain Willie Williams. And he was like, yo, what's going on, man? They got you. They had me secluded in a tent. They told none of my peers, don't talk to him. Like for weeks, like I was like on quarantine. He was like, yo, just get back to work so you can, this doesn't hurt your career. And I'm like, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it. So they all move forward with this court martial. But at night, it's funny, all my superiors at night, like the sergeants and the first sergeants and the master sergeants and the, the private soldiers, they would all come to my tent at night and they would talk to me for hours. And I would tell them, I remember like this was yesterday, I would say, I'm not a fucking afraid. You know, I would say a lot of things, but because they knew I was in big trouble. But I just told them, listen, I'm not afraid. And this is not right, guys. I would have this fucking this revolt, <laughs> revolt meeting for weeks. Now, during the day, nobody could come near me. But at night, they would all come through. And I, I can remember 20, 30 people just listening to me talk to them about real life issues and how life is supposed to be and how we're being mistreated here. I remember seeing some of my some of the biggest sergeants and staff sergeants that I really respected crying at during those times and saying, I wish I wish that I could do what you're about to do right now, because now I'm challenging them. This whole court martial thing, I'm challenging that whole system. And so long story short, after that, I went to the court martial and they pulled up my files and it was like, wait a minute. You've done some outstanding shit here. This is the military saying this to me. You've done special forces circuit training school. You've done this leadership program. You've went to Africa. If you went to South America, you've done all of these things. What's going on here? And so I told the, the one general, Fulbert Colonel, I said, this is what happened. These are my gripes. You know, I got platoon sergeants show me this, you know, pictures of them in, in, in full regalia, Klansmen. And I said, I got this guy harassing me over here. So I fucked them up. I said, I'm tired of this military shit. He said, are you sure you're going to go back to Brooklyn and be working key food, sweeping floors? He tried to get me to stay. I was like, you know what? If I was going to work at key food, I'm going to work at key food. I knew I was never going to work at key food, but I wanted out. And so I said, I'm out. I'm done. So they didn't send me to prison. They couldn't. They looked at my record and they was like, yo, you've been a model's fucking soldier. I was recommended for ranger school. Ranger school is like top 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 of the shit top of the line i was recommended for ranger school i completed special forces circuit training school number of leadership schools they said you're a career soldier what are you doing you're throwing this all away i threw it all away in a blink of an eye and i left the military 
came back to New York with nothing. At that point, I wanted to be a rapper. So one, two, one, two, rapper. <laughs> I said, I'll be a rapper. So I started getting into the music business. It wasn't real all it was cracked up to be. You still had to be like answer to the gatekeepers and shit like that. Mm-hmm. So I was getting fired from jobs, job after job because of my attitude, of course, bad attitude. And then one day I said, you know what? I'm going to do something different. So I took one of my raps, my little raps, and there was this pencil portrait that this Jamaican guy made of a, a woman with a head wrap on and she was holding a baby and swaddles, I guess a swaddle, some type of cloth. It was a beautiful sketch, charcoal sketch. And I took, and I, I remember looking for months to find the original. Of course, I'm not going to find the original, but I found it after about a year. Not the original, but a really good copy. And I took that, I brought it to a printer, and I said, can we put this on a T-shirt? They said, sure. I said, matter of fact, before we put it on a T-shirt, before we print it on a T-shirt, I had this little wrap, and I took an excerpt, a small portion of it, and I put it along the side, and then, of course, you had the picture. So now you have this powerful image of this woman, mother, holding her little baby. He had this passage that I wrote along the side and the passage said, I got love for all of the women who were there for me when I was weak, who'd often come around and offer me something to eat till death do us part. My loyalty is forever. Let my voice be the thunder to guide you in stormy weather. I put that shit on a shirt, got this image. It was an earth tone shirt. And I said, you know what? I printed up like maybe was maybe a hundred cost me a, a lot of money. I had to borrow from somebody. And I went out on sixth Avenue every day in Manhattan and bumped them shirts for $20 a while. I said, God damn it. If I could sell crack in the hood and sell heroin as a baby, I could sell a motherfucking t-shirt. So every day I'd be on sixth Avenue on Avenue a selling these shirts and surprise. And it was a few people. But with me, you know, they had ideas of selling basketballs on T-shirts. And one guy had an idea of selling like something religious on a T-shirt and nobody bought their shit. But people came up, bought my stuff. I had a little thing. Supreme fashion, supreme. Fa I would stand out there in the middle street without. I think you needed like permits and stuff. I didn't have none of that shit. I didn't need a permit to sell drugs. I'm certainly not going to apply for a permit to sell a fucking T-shirt. So the cops would chase you all around New York. You know what I mean? But I'd be there every day and I wouldn't leave Sixth Avenue until I sold 107. I think my quota was $107 at the minimum worth of T-shirts every day. And I stood out there for maybe two years or so. Mm -hmm. And I remember the celebrities would come through and celebrities would buy two shirts, three shirts here, three shirts there. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And then I remember one day seeing Tretch from Naughty by Nature. Tretch came through and he he dabbed me up. It's like, I like what you're doing. You wrote that? I said, I wrote it. He said, yo, let me get a hundred. Wow. Let me get a hundred. I'm passing out to the hood, everybody in the hood. Now, there were $20 a shirt. He wanted a hundred. That was a great day for me, man. So he bought all my shirts that day, everything that I had in the stash. And I was like, that's a real fucking dude, Tretch. And that was a bump to my confidence as well as to my pocket, because 
yeah, I made money. I made that quota every day, but now we're talking thousands from one person. And that just gave me the, the, the idea to be an entrepreneur, like for real, you know? And I remember black thought came through from the roots, cornball. He came through and wouldn't buy one. He was like, nah, 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 I'm not interested. And I remember saying, fuck you. You know what I'm saying? Cause I didn't care. I, I got hands. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, what little man, what? But I guess it was the fact of being rejected that he just dismissed me. Like, get out of here. And I'm like, don't you know, I've spent years selling crack and heroin. I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> and I was selling t-shirts. I'm like, oh boy. So it really hurt my pride that he just dismissed me like that. So I just like, yo, fuck you. You know, Trench came through shortly thereafter again, bought hundred shirts. And then I said, you know what? I could get into showcases. If I could do this, I could, you know, my little rap skills, I could, you know, start doing showcases. So I started doing showcases, which I, you know, I'm, I'm famous throughout the world for doing showcases. And a lot of people on Long Island don't really even know who the fuck I am, but I've carried uh, the unsigned artist community all over the world for about 22 years on my back. When you start asking people who I'm not going to say this name, this particular name, everybody's like, oh, that's him. Because a lot of artists that's out there today, I got them their deals because I was based out of a club in Manhattan called Club Pyramid. And now life is getting different now. You know what I'm saying? Because now, you know, fast forward, I'm at, I'm at Club Pyramid for 20 years now. Every week, 20 years, this is my thing. I'm not selling shirts no more. I'm not selling drugs no more. I'm not dealing with any bullshit no more from the past. I'm making bread. And Puffy's coming through. Um, you know, various celebrities are coming through. I remember at one point we had the whole cast of Flavor of Love come through to support. You know, it was just, it was bananas. Even when you would go to record labels, they would tell you, oh, you got to go see Mental Supreme first. You want a record deal, you got to go see him. So again, I built that core following up in the entertainment business, but I did it my way. I didn't want to go to the mansion parties. I didn't want to go to lunch with Puff and them. I didn't want to just, I, I want, I didn't want no parts of the entertainment business, the intimate parts of it. I wanted to do shit my way because if I did it my way, I could say what I want to say, did what I want to do. And I carried the unsigned community on my back for about 20 years or so. And we had fucking fun. You ask, if you ask people that have come to New York city or, or maybe I came to their city or state and, and put on one of these big lavish events, they'll tell you it was incredible. Eight Mile was built off of my shit. The movie Eight Mile, I'm sure they was doing what they were doing. But, you know, a couple of people from that place uh, where they're from was at training camp, you know, which I call the training camp. I built something called the training camp where all unsigned artists would come through and they would train and hone their skills, not only on stage and not only with the rap, with the, with the rapping, but with the business acumen. They would get better businessmen, businesswomen. Because I would bring in specialists from all over the world and all over the entertainment business to talk to them. So it was a real, really big industry thing that we did that, that I carved out for myself. And I think that's when life really, really changed for me. Because I, I built that shit. I named that shit. I was the face of the unsigned community for so long. And again, little mama. Bobby Schmurder, Latifah, I mean, so many people, you know what I'm saying? Puff was there. I mean, so many people got their start from that stage in particular, you know? So I'm proud of that because, you know, from such a, um, a crazy beginning, 
I, I managed to do that for 20 years. I said, fuck a job because I was tired of being fired. I said, fuck drugs because I'm not a coward. I'm not selling drugs to people who can't defend themselves. I don't know better. And I said, um, yo, I can, I can do this. Even from the background that I came from, you know? So that's why some people say, oh, you're too hardcore. You're too focused. You're too disciplined. I've been through some shit, man. I've been through some shit only to come out on what I believe ahead of the game. You know, I own, I run a few businesses. I own a few businesses now in uh, the health and wellness space. So, you know, and I do a hell of a lot of traveling and I'm really just enjoying life. But there was one monumental moment and we'll talk about that on the next segment that changed everything for good, because mind you, even before all of this so-called success and all this so-called deliverance, I was still wild. I still had a very bad temper. I still would fight the cops. I still spit razors out, cut people's faces and pack them guns. I still did all of that shit. No matter what was still going on, I still had that craziness embedded in me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but on the next segment, we'll talk about, you know, if we have time, we'll talk about how everything came full circle or is coming full circle and what happened to make that happen. You know what I'm saying? So now the space that I'm in right now, I'm very much calmer, very much more focused. I'm very much more um, committed to adding value to other people's lives. So, but you know, just like when you look at the Lotus flower, the Lotus flower comes from the bottom of ponds and the muddy, muddy, murky mud. Every morning it rises from that murk, that mud, and it blossoms into this beautiful blue, this beautiful blue, yellow, white flower. And then by the day's end, it folds up and goes right back down into that mud. But when it rises, it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of like how my life has been. So that was my conversation with Gajuar Siafu. Again, that's part two of a three-part series. Next week will be the last installment of the series. And his links are in the show notes. So if you want to buy his healing herbs, I will make sure there's a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips and quotes from famous authors, things like that. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then. <laughs>